What is God's will for your life? That's a question we all wonder about sometimes. And so this morning, I'm very pleased to announce that I am able to tell you God's will for your life. That's not because I received a load of prophetic messages last week. It's not because I have any inside information about you. I can tell you God's will for your life because God has published it. The information is available to anyone who cares to look for it. Most of you already own a copy of the information. You may have brought it with you this morning. If you didn't, we have extra copies available. They're on a shelf at the back, at least they were. And you realize by now I'm talking about the Bible. The Bible tells you and me God's will for our lives. We can turn to any part of the Bible and learn about God's will for us. But this morning we're going to look at a passage that's very particularly focused on this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. It's on page 1140 or in the large print 1762. Last week we started looking at Romans 13, and this morning we're going to read and then look at verses 8 to 14. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, Not in sexual immorality and debauchery. Not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is God's word. Roughly 1,500 years before Paul sat down to write this letter to the Romans... Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. God miraculously made a way through the Red Sea for them. He drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And the Israelites ended up camped safely in the desert at the foot of Mount Sinai. And while they're there, God speaks to them. First of all, he reminds them what he has done for them. Then he tells them what he has planned for them. Here's the reminder. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt 
and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And then here's God's plan for them. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, God has rescued Israel and now they are to serve him. That's what priests do. Israel is to be a nation of priests, a nation that serves God. And having told Israel his will for them, God then gave specifics about what it meant to serve him. He gave them his law, including the Ten Commandments. Those commandments express God's will for his people's lives. They had been saved to serve him. And the law showed how they were to serve him. Why do I mention all that? I mention it because we find a very similar thing happening in Romans. The first part of the letter explained our dire situation. We're born slaves to sin. Then we learned what God did to lead us out of that slavery. Through his death on the cross, Christ opened up a way for us. When we trust in his death in our place, our sins are forgiven. Their power over us is broken. And our guilt is washed away. Just like Pharaoh and his army were washed away. God has shown us mercy. And then, just like Israel camped at Mount Sinai, we are told what God's will is for us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The word translated worship could equally be translated service. This is your true and proper service. As people who have received God's mercy, we are now to serve God, just like Israel after the Red Sea. Now, at Mount Sinai, God gave Israel a long and detailed set of laws for serving him. And here in Romans, we get law too, but it's considerably shorter. Paul says in our passage, love one another. That's God's law. Look again at verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Back in verse 7, Paul told us to pay whatever we owe to the government, taxes and so on. And here, as he moves on to Christian relationships in verse 8, he says, pay what you owe there too. And what you owe one another is love. And notice this is a particular debt we will never be finished paying. It's a never-ending debt. It's not like your mortgage. 
Mortgages feel never-ending, but they're not. Our debt of love is different. It's not going to be paid up after 15 or 20 or 30 years. Now that does not mean we should give up and say, well, what's the point then? But it does mean we can never say we have loved enough. We can never say I've done my bit. Obviously, of course, the way we show our love is going to change over the course of our lives. But we will always owe love to our Christian brothers and sisters. How do we know Paul is talking specifically about Christian relationships here? Because he says, love one another. And in the New Testament, that language means love within the Christian fellowship. It's amazing how many times this command appears in the New Testament. For example, read through 1 John. It's very hard to preach a series of sermons on 1 John. Because the point of just about every sermon is going to be love one another. John keeps on saying it. And John and Paul got it from Jesus. Jesus was the one who laid down this law for us. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Francis Schaeffer wrote a little book on these verses called The Mark of the Christian. And he was not overstating things. In the New Testament, loving one another doesn't make us Christians, but it is the distinguishing mark of those who are Christians. And Schaeffer went on to say, when it comes to our witness to the world around us, the final apologetic which Jesus gives us is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. In other words, our love for one another is the best argument for the truth of Christianity. A group of people who are all indwelt by the Holy Spirit are able to display a kind of love that is not normal. People who observe our love for one another should be forced to say, there's something supernatural at work there. And I want to hear the message that lies behind it. But this love for one another doesn't just happen by itself. And that's why again and again in the New Testament, we are commanded to love. And back in chapter 12, Paul gave some details about what this love will look like. It will mean we compete to show honor to one another. And Paul is going to devote the whole of chapter 14 and the first half of chapter 15 explaining what it means to love one another, fleshing this all out for us. So he will give us lots more help to understand this. 
But here in chapter 13, he wants to show how this command to love relates to God's law. In verse 8, we're told, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. What does he mean? Well, he's referring to the Old Testament law. The system of laws that were given to Moses at Mount Sinai. That law is found in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Here in verse 9, Paul gives some examples from that law. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. And then Paul says that system of laws is fulfilled when you keep this one law. Love one another. How can that be true? Well, Paul is not saying, so long as I love you, it doesn't matter if I steal from you or murder you. He's not saying that. His point is, if I love you, truly love you, then the other stuff will come naturally. I won't murder you. I won't covet what you have. I won't commit adultery with you or with your spouse. Nor will I do anything that harms you. And positively, I will work to bless you. So obeying the command to love doesn't cause us to ignore the other commands. It causes us to obey them. The Old Testament law gives us a picture of what genuine love looks like in action. When we love one another, that's what our love is going to look like. And the reason this is so important is because we have a tendency today to think of love as a fluffy thing. It's a bit of a hazy concept. We can be very quick to say, I love you, today. But if someone asked us, what do you mean by that? We might find it hard to answer. But what Paul does here is show that biblical love for one another has a very definite shape. We can describe it. Biblical love is given shape by the many Old Testament commands about relating to one another. The Bible does not say much at all about love being a feeling. It says plenty about love being a choice to treat other people a certain way. And that is very countercultural. How often in TV shows and movies do you find one of the characters saying, Yes, I had an affair with this person, but I never stopped loving my spouse. I'll always love my spouse. Biblical love would never say that. Biblical love says, I will love my spouse by not having the affair. I will love this other person by not overcharging them. I will love this person by not spreading rumors about them. I will love this person by giving them a fair hearing, not prejudging them. The Old Testament law shows us what our love is to look like. 
But think for a moment about the early part of this letter to the Romans. In the early chapters, Paul mentioned the law a lot. And his consistent message in those chapters was, you can't keep it. By ourselves, we are under the power of sin. Trying to keep God's law only leads to failure and condemnation. But then Paul told us what God has done through Jesus. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. He died to pay for our sin and set us free from the power of sin. When we put our trust in Jesus and his work, we receive a new power. Chapter 8 told us, if we belong to Christ, we have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. And we are able, in the Spirit's power, to keep God's law. So the point is, the Old Testament law gives us a picture of love for one another. It does not give us the power to fulfill that picture. It's the New Testament that provides the power to fulfill the Old Testament picture. So when the screen behind me says, loving one another is God's law, it doesn't mean we can earn God's acceptance by loving one another. No, we, when we have received God's acceptance by trusting in Jesus, then, in the power God provides, we can fulfill the command to love. If we belong to Jesus, none of us can ever say, I can't love this brother or sister. Now, we might often say, I'm not sure how to love this brother or sister. I need help to figure that out. Do I need to love them with encouragement or maybe with rebuke? Do I need to go the extra mile with this brother or sister? Or do I need to make them face the consequences of their own actions? As you and I seek to love one another, we're going to have dilemmas like that all the time. About how we love one another. But we will never be in a position where we are unable to love one another. God's Holy Spirit enables us. What's being asked of us here really is very clear. It was very clear last week too. The trouble is we all have a tendency to listen on Sunday and forget by Wednesday or even earlier. Last week, we heard Paul's call to be subject to the governing authorities. And one of the ways I tried to apply that in our context was by mentioning speed limits. And I know from talking to some of you, it probably took you a little longer to get back home for lunch on Sunday. You remembered the application. But did you still remember it this morning? By Wednesday night, I was struggling to remember it myself. We were running late, taking the boys to football. And I was tempted to forget my own challenge. 
or the way that God's word had challenged me. We forget very quickly. Or if we don't really forget, we set things aside very quickly. And that's true not just when God's word challenges us about our attitude to government. It's true every time we hear God's word. It's true when God's word challenges us to love one another. We hear, we understand, and we very quickly forget. Paul knows that. And Paul has one consistent approach to that problem. Again and again in his letters, Paul helps us to take God's word seriously by reminding us Jesus is coming back. And here in Romans 13, right after this call to love one another, Paul gives us the incentive to do it. He says, wake up. Jesus is coming back. Verse 11, he says, and do this. Now, I take that as a reference to what Paul has just said, the command to love one another. Although it may stretch back to the whole of chapters 12 and 13, to the call to be living sacrifices, refusing to repay evil for evil, honoring the government, and loving one another. Paul says, do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Nowadays, we can set our own timetable for night and day. Since we have artificial light, we can work all night and sleep all day if we really want to. But it was not like that in the ancient world. In the ancient world, when the sun came up, you got up. You knew you only had so many hours of light. So you got up to make the most of that light. And that's the background to the picture here. Paul says we are to obey God understanding the present time. Literally knowing the time. And what you and I are to know is... It's nearly sunrise. Not the sunrise of just another day, but the day, capital D, the day of Jesus' return. His return is close, the New Testament tells us. His return could come at any time. It is the next event on God's calendar. You and I need to understand that and be awake and ready. How do we show that we are awake and ready? We show it by doing what we're supposed to be doing. Loving one another. That is God's will for us. Isn't that what we want to be caught doing when Jesus returns? Wouldn't we be happy if he caught us doing that? What does Paul mean when he says our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed? Well, according to the New Testament, Christians are both saved, 
and waiting to be saved. We are saved from the guilt of sin, but we're still waiting to be saved from the consequences of sin. The way Paul put it in chapter 8 is, we are justified, we are waiting to be glorified. We're adopted as sons and daughters of God. In Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation for us. And at the same time, we're still waiting for our full inheritance. The redemption of our bodies and the glory that will be revealed in us. We are saved and we're waiting to be saved. And every day we live brings that future day closer. And so we are to live as people who belong to that future day. Someone has said we are to become what we will one day be. The book of Revelation describes what we will one day not be. Revelation tells us there will be no room in the new heaven and earth for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. That's not a comprehensive list. It's a list of examples. Examples of what won't be in God's presence. And we know, don't we, that outside of Jesus Christ, that list described us. Our lives displayed those kind of things. But now, in Christ, our lives are to be different. God has given us the power to be different. The night is almost over. That future day is almost here. We are to live lives fit for that future day. We are to become what we will one day be. We're not to live sleepy Christian lives where we ignore God's word or allow ourselves to forget it. The new day is getting ready to dawn. We need to be awake. And being awake means we commit ourselves to keep conforming to the image of Christ. Look at the middle of verse 12. Paul says, so, in other words, because the day of Christ's return is almost here, because it could come any day, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Having told us it's time to wake up, now Paul says it's time to dress up. In these last verses, he refers to our behavior in terms of clothes. We're to take off our nighttime clothes and put on our daytime clothes. Then in verses 13 and 14, he explains both kinds of clothes, what exactly he means. Look first at the nighttime clothes we're to take off in verse 13. Carousing, that's basically binging, drunkenness, sexual immorality. That is all sex outside of God's blueprint for sex, 
a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Debauchery. It's basically self-indulgence. Dissension, or we could say rivalry. Jealousy. Refusing to rejoice with those who rejoice. But instead, feeling negative about other people's success. Wishing it was us instead. Again, that's only a list of examples. It's not a comprehensive list. In verse 14, Paul says he's talking about the desires of the flesh, whatever form they take. And there's enough variety even here for all of us to see something we need to put aside. If drunkenness doesn't apply to you, what about dissension? What about jealousy? Those are all deeds of darkness. They're like clothes that suit the nighttime. But they are not appropriate for people who belong to the day. They don't fit people who are anticipating Christ's return. They're not the kind of clothes we're going to be wearing in the new heaven and earth. So now is the time to take them off. And instead, we're to put on daytime clothes. In verse 12, Paul calls those clothes the armor of light. And in verse 14, he defines that another way. We are to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean? Well, if the nighttime clothes were to take off our sinful actions and sinful attitudes then our daytime clothes are the actions and attitudes of Jesus. That's what Paul means. We are to be conformed to Jesus' image. He's both our savior and our example. He shows us what it looks like to love others. Remember what he said in John's gospel, as I have loved you, So you must love one another. Jesus shows us what it looks like to be a servant. To live with self-control. To obey God. How do we put on clothes that are fit for Christ's return? We follow the example of Christ. When the New Testament describes how Christians are to live, it's describing how Jesus really did live. And maybe we respond to that by saying, well, okay, but he was God's son. Give me a break. If you're thinking that way, though, remember this. Those who belong to Christ have the spirit of Christ living in them. That's what Romans 8 told us. I agree, we can't naturally live like Jesus. But we mustn't belittle the supernatural power God has given us. In Ephesians, Paul says the power at work in us is the same power that raised Christ up from the dead. 
And as we pursue conformity to Christ, we know God has destined us for conformity to Christ. Romans 8 says this, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. If you are a Christian, that is God's will for you. You can pursue it then with confidence. And it's a lifelong process. We are not to give up in despair because we're not fully dressed for the day yet. We're to keep on taking off those nighttime clothes and putting on our daytime clothes. Setting aside sinful actions and attitudes and putting on Christ-like ones. What is God's will for your life and for mine? It's that we fulfill his law by loving one another. Remembering all the time that Jesus is coming back and always seeking to be conformed to his image. We've heard about the work that we are to do. And now our last song asks God to continue his work in us. And we can be thankful that he does continue to work in us. So let's sing, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling.